The Old Testament reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 9. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his teaching. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. See, the former things have come to pass, and the new things I, declare, I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of the Lord. This day on the church calendar, as some of you know, especially if you come from more liturgical, uh, a more liturgical background, is the baptism of the Lord. And it always occurs on the Sunday after uh, Epiphany and churches around the world today will be reading and reflecting on this story, the one we are about to hear from Matthew's Gospel. And I think it's extraordinary, it is extraordinary when you think about it, that hundreds of millions of Christians in so many countries around the world will hear this same story today and then we'll think about what it means. Uh, we are not under orders from the Vatican to do this. Uh, I did not get an email from the Pope uh, this week uh, instructing me to preach about this story. This is a centuries-old tradition and it has been passed down from one generation of believers to the next. Uh, every year and it happens very close to the beginning of the year. Every year we do this same thing. Lots of people, I am one of them, are uh, looking for a sign of hope right about now, a reason to feel optimistic, some bit of evidence that God is in control of our world and, and of history itself. And so, as I thought about it, I thought this is a very appropriate story for us to read at the beginning of 2017. The story I'm going to read for you is Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism. And it is surprisingly short, just uh, three verses. I'm going to extend it a bit uh, because it is so short. We'll begin with verse 13 and, and the extra two verses will uh, help us understand the story a bit better. But for something so important in Jesus' life and, and for something so important in each of our lives, it's shocking in a way that there are so few details. Uh, in fact, uh, all of the drama in this story, the heavens opening and the, the dove descending, the voice uh, that comes from heaven, uh, according to Matthew, uh, this was a part of the story that uh, only Jesus noticed. Uh, we're not told that anyone else that day was aware of what was happening. Now, it's possible, of course, that others noticed, but that's not what Matthew tells us. 
Uh, he tells us, as, as we're going to hear in a minute, that the heavens were open to him, not to everyone, but, but to him. Jesus' cousin John, whom we love to call John the Baptist, had his own reasons to be shocked and and, and surprised that day, having nothing to do with a voice from heaven. What seems clear is that John never expected to see Jesus standing in line in this queue, uh, waiting his turn for baptism that day. So John's first instinct was to say to Jesus, no, this is wrong, I, I I need to be baptized by you. But John finally did baptize Jesus, and uh, with this baptism, events were set in motion that the world is still experiencing today. This was a baptism like no other. This was the beginning of something extraordinary. (coughs) We like to think of Jesus' birth as the beginning of his work. (coughs) And in a way it was, I suppose, but the gospel writers seem to think that the baptism was the official beginning. This is where Jesus first appears as a, a full-grown man. His, his years of preparation are over. We don't know exactly how he prepared, but when we see him here, he is ready. At long last, he is ready to begin the work that he has been sent into the world to do. So let's listen to this story together, beginning, as I said, with verse 13. This is from... Uh, Matthew chapter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, if you hear a story like that and don't wonder about it, if you listened as I read it for you and you don't find yourself asking some questions about it, then I don't think you're a very curious person. Your neural pathways need some lubricating. As I mentioned, this story is one of the most important stories in all the Gospels, each of the the, the, the first three Gospels has a version of it, but it, it's the sort of story that leaves us with more questions than answers. Here's one. Why did Jesus, of all people, even need to be baptized? Uh, if, as I believe, baptism is about repentance and the, the, the washing away of sins and the beginning of a new life, then what was Jesus doing in the queue that day? Right? Waiting for his turn to go under the water. Right? I've often thought that Jesus should have had a separate day for his baptism, don't you? A, a special service, John could have hired brass instruments for the occasion, and the, the choir could have practiced a, a, a special anthem. But there was none of that. Jesus was in line. I think about this. With all of the other sinners... That day, very curious. 
That's one question. There are more, and, and we ask questions like that because, well, we want to know. Right? We are, uh, by nature, curious people. I love the old prayer. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for giving us minds to know you, hearts to love you, and voices to, to show forth your praise. We have been given minds to know God. Some of us are, are, are more curious than others. I suppose it's always going to be true. But if Jesus is important to you, and if you have decided to follow him with your life, then you will want to know what's happening here. You will want to know everything that you can about him. Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century Danish philosopher and, and, and theologian, once said, a believer, after all, is someone in love. And I, I, I like that. I think it's true. Right? A believer is someone who feels passion about this subject. When you love someone, you want to know everything that there is to know about that person. You, you ask questions and, and you watch carefully and everything that other person says and does, of course, is amazing and, and wonderful and delightful. I've been married to the same person now for... Uh, close to 40 years. Yes, I'm surprised to say that number uh, out loud. And I, I'm su- <laughs> you may be surprised to hear me say this, but each day continues to be a process of discovery. <laughs> There's a great deal I still don't know, and I think she would agree that I still don't know a, a great deal. <laughs> but love compels us to, to learn. Right? And, and, and to understand, how, how can you love someone without uh, uh, knowing their moods and, and their motivations and the things they love and, of course, the, the things they hate? If I say I love someone but show no interest in, in her life and her hobbies and her friends, then you, you have to wonder how much I really love that person. Let me pause right here to say that the, the sermon today is going to be the beginning of a a sermon series, uh, which will take us all the way to uh, Easter. Uh, And the sermon series is going to be about what Christians believe, and it's going to be loosely based on the Apostles' Creed. Last fall, I led an adult education class on the, the, the creeds and confessions of the church, thinking that one day our church, IPC, might want to uh, write a statement of faith of its own, and if you've ever been to our website, uh, then maybe you've noticed that we have no statement of faith. And it's not as though we've never thought about it, and it's not as though there's never been an attempt uh, to write one, uh, uh, but right now there's nothing there. Well, as the class went along last fall, I began to realize something. You, you, you can't write a, a statement of faith until you know what you believe, uh, until you've thought about it uh, a, a little bit. Right? And, and so uh, I decided that we as a congregation needed to talk together first about what was important to us and what we would want to include. And so beginning today and continuing for the next uh, several weeks, we're going to examine our faith. We're going to take a hard look at God the Father and God the Son and, and God the Holy Spirit. And beyond that, I want to explore together what it means to be saved. The world has many admirers of Jesus today, ask most people as a matter of fact, and and they will express some admiration for Jesus and and what he taught. But uh, as I hope you know, Jesus was not looking for admirers. He was looking for disciples. 
people who were committed to his way of life. And so we need to explore together this difference between admiring Jesus and and following Jesus. Between respecting him as a teacher and and recognizing him as the word made flesh. Uh, And in case you worry that this will be a dry and and, uh, intellectual conversation, better suited to a seminary classroom than to a morning worship service, I want to remind you about what I just said. Believers, uh, as Kierkegaard put it, are people in love. And I don't know uh, how many people you've known over the years who have been in love, but here's one thing that I've learned. Uh, You should not get in their way. Uh, Nature knows no greater force than the attraction of love. Gravity is nothing. Gravity is nothing compared to the power of someone in love. In other words, this will not be a dry intellectual conversation. I don't see how it could be. If anything, we are going to have to be careful and respectful and deliberate, all words not usually associated with passion. We may have to learn mutual forbearance and all of those other New Testament phrases about getting along with each other. In the late 1990s, I was serving a church in in the U.S. in in Wheaton, Illinois, and I set out to do something similar to what I've laid out for us here, and uh, I planned an 18-week sermon series on what Christians believe. First time in my ministry I'd ever attempted something like that, and all I can say is that I was young and not very bright. And uh, as you might imagine, a plan like that flew in the face of every church growth strategy known to humankind. Uh, You don't grow a church by preaching 18 weeks on on Christian doctrine. You grow a church by giving tips on parenting. You grow a church by telling people how to have happy marriages. You know, practical topics that people can take home and use. Uh, That's what I read in all of the church growth manuals that I had on my desk. Uh, Some of you know how this story turned out, I wrote a book about it, Uh, counterintuitively, that church began to grow. And not by a little, but by a lot. Uh, I thought I might empty out the pews, (laughs) and that we would be left with a few faithful uh, people who really care about theology and church doctrine, but instead more and more people started showing up each week, and the adult education class, which ran in parallel with that sermon series, Uh, also was very well attended. And so the harder I made it, the more people seemed to like it. At the end of the 18 weeks, instead of having a a, a tiny congregation, two or three deeply devoted people, a committee had to be informed, uh, had to be formed to uh, enlarge the church building, to provide for more space. We started a building campaign, and in the end, we doubled the footprint of that particular church. Just so you know, I have no desire to start a building campaign. Frankly, I don't think I could survive another one. But I do want you to know what I learned, and namely that people are hungry to have their questions answered. Generally speaking, and and there are always going to be exceptions to this rule, but generally speaking, people want to know the truth. 
Right? Not easy answers. I mean, you, you, you can look those up on the internet, but, but hard answers, the kind that take weeks and months and years to, to, to learn and to absorb, it, it, it's not that our faith is terribly complicated. It's not. In, in fact, it's easy. Anyone who has read uh, John 3.16 knows all there, is, uh, uh, all there is to know, really. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him might not perish but might have eternal life. That's not complicated. But as I've been saying, everyone who hears those words wants to know more. Uh, coming to faith is, is not the end of our questions. It's the beginning. Faith, if it's real and And if it's alive, always wants to know more, and it always hungers for more. And once that passion within us has been been kindled, we can't help ourselves. Let me make one or two comments about this that I, I think we all need to hear at the beginning. The first is that faith is not the same thing as intellectual curiosity. Uh, I am intellectually curious about my wife, but that's not the same thing as love, right? And and she doesn't experience it as love. Uh, Too many people think of their ability to uh, ask good questions, and I mean good theological questions, as evidence of deep faith. And just so you know, I don't. Frankly, and and, uh, please hear the spirit in which I uh, say this, Uh, frankly, I find myself annoyed, (laughs) Uh, by some of the questions that people ask. Uh, For some of us, again, hear me out on this, for some of us, our questions are a way to keep faith at a distance. We appear to some people as earnest and and thoughtful, but our questions are not about getting closer to God. Uh, Our questions are about making us look smart. If you have spent your adult life thinking up really good questions to ask, I'm not sure what to say to you, except that I think you've missed the point. If your questions are not getting you closer to the one you love, then you're asking the wrong questions. And here's a second uh, comment, and it's related to the the first. Uh, Faith is uh, about a lot more than asking questions and intellectual curiosity. I grew up in a Christian tradition that emphasized the uh, intellectual side of things. In fact, that's the understatement of the century. Uh, No one thought more deeply about the faith than we did. No one produced more theologians than than we did. Uh, But there was something missing. For me, there was something missing. And for a long time in my own life, far too long, my head was engaged, but not my heart. I loved to listen to the lectures, I could recite the the answers, I had memorized the catechism, but my heart was somewhere else entirely. The the day that my heart finally caught up to my head was one of the best days of my life. The, the, The day I could feel it as well as think about it was a day I will never forget. If there's an imbalance in your life between uh, your head and your heart, I hope you will work at it. The imbalance works the other way too, of course. Uh, Some people are all passion and no substance. They feel it deeply, but they've never pushed too far. They've never read a challenging book. They've never taken a class. And if that describes you, I I want you to challenge yourself as well. You two are missing something terribly important. Remember the prayer I mentioned, thanking God for minds to know him and 
There's something important about that. A faith that is all feeling and no content can be dismantled pretty quickly. The first storm that comes along in your life will swamp your little boat. Uh, I urge you to equip yourself for what lies ahead. One last thing, and and, uh, I, I say this with Christian compassion, faith is about more than the head and it's about more than the heart. There's something else as well. Uh, When the leper in in Luke's gospel returns to thank Jesus for his healing, Jesus said to him, your faith has made you well. And and of course, Jesus didn't mean your intellectual curiosity has healed you. Your memorization of the Nicene Creed has made you well. No, I don't think that's what he meant. In that story, and there are others just like it, faith is a capacity within us that enables us to do some things. Jesus once said, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, so small that you can barely see it, you could move mountains. You could say to this tree, be uprooted and plant yourself in the heart of the sea. So faith has this other dimension too. It's a power that exists within us. We can harness it and we can channel it and, and we can use it to do extraordinary work in the world. If we had faith here at IPC, no more than this big, there's no telling what we could do as a church. Well, that's all for now, except for one last word about the baptism of Jesus. The the, the question I asked at the beginning. Why did Jesus need to be baptized by John in the Jordan River along with all of the other sinners who were in the queue that day because Jesus became one of us. He voluntarily became like us. He had no need for repentance. He had no need for the washing away of sin. He had no need for the start of a new life. Of course he didn't. But how was he going to accomplish the washing away of our sins if he didn't enter into our lives and experience life as we know it? That's the good news. I mean, that is the length to which God will go to claim us. Congratulations. Your first theological question has landed you close to the heart of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the story we read today and for all of the questions that it uh, arouses within us. We pray that you will take those questions and uh, lay your spirit on them. Help us as we ask questions about you and your way with us. Help us to draw closer to you. Help us to use our questions to cultivate a relationship, a relationship that will be there for us in the most difficult of times. Lord, as we close our Bibles now and praise you in song, we pray that you will enter our lives and claim us for your own and transform us into the people you have called us to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.